Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. This week, we take a closer look at our cultural and spiritual assumptions about aging and a disease that afflicts some 6 million Americans, dementia. Nearly 15 years ago, Lynn Castile-Harper finished divinity school and her chaplaincy training, and she accepted her first assignment serving as a chaplain in a sprawling retirement community with 1,500 residents in New Jersey. She was excited that campus offered a spectrum of care, from assisted living to skilled nursing. But shortly after arriving, Harper discovered an expectation that surprised her, a message that she need not spend too much time in the dementia unit. Instead, she did make connections to residents many had seen as gone, and she discovered a passion to better understand dementia and to challenge some of the cultural and spiritual assumptions about the disease. Her experiences, insights, and reflections are found in the pages of her book, On Vanishing, Mortality, Dementia, and What It Means to Disappear, which is where our conversation begins. When I sat down with your book, I was struck by the tone. It's not simply a reflection from the point of view of somebody who has something to say about what they've observed. It's also part memoir. You bring yourself and introduce yourself in an extremely personal way at the outset of this book in talking about your grandfather. And I I wanted to ask you, what led you to begin here? to decide that this would be the starting point. Maybe this goes back to me being a pastor. I've always felt like unless I really connect with something, I don't expect other people to as well. So unless what I'm writing about connects to my spirituality, how can I expect it to connect with others? And so when I preach. I'm always thinking about how do I preach not at the congregation, but with and for them. And so as I approached this book, I really didn't want it to be another caregiver manual or something kind of distance from myself. I really wanted it to be about my own spirituality and people like me who aren't there yet, don't have a diagnosis, or maybe aren't actively caregiving, but really care about these issues of what makes us human. And to me, that wasn't something I could really do in an essay, in a short piece, to really dive deeply into these questions of why and what brings us meaning. And why am I so drawn to this topic required more than 1,500 words or even 4,000 words. It felt like you were sitting across from me, sometimes sharing stream of consciousness, 
sometimes more linear stories around how you ended up in the chaplaincy program. And then at times it was like you invited me into your library where you've been studying the topic of dementia. I want to back up before we get to the book. What drew you to Divinity School? What you hit on is I'm a little bit of like a collage artist in my writing. I I like to put a lot of pieces together. And so when I think about Divinity School, I think about kind of the collage of my life. And I, I had some very powerful mentors in my undergraduate experience who began to reflect back to me some of my gifts and some of the ways they saw me developing and connecting with people and connecting with my faith. So I, I guess like all things, it's, it's not a linear process, but I felt a sense of affirmation being around ministers and being exposed to women ministers as well. In many traditions, that's not something we see a lot, but I began to encounter women in ministry who were affirming my gifts and affirming the way I was writing and thinking. And one of them said, have you ever thought about divinity school? And it just felt right. I couldn't think of anything else I'd rather do than study and think about matters of faith and the meaning of things and to also have the freedom to have writing as part of my vocation. The book felt in some ways like a clarion call to examine how we think about people who struggle with Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, dementia, and and there are so many types that you list out. When you were starting your work at the gardens in New Jersey, the continuing care facility, how did that shape or impact your understanding about what you believed or knew to be dementia? It shaped me deeply. When I was first introduced to the dementia unit, the message was given, you won't spend much time here, that these people are kind of so far gone and have disappeared into their disease that I wasn't really expected to appear to them and to be a real presence. And what I found was these people were individuals who had desires, who had hopes and dreams, who desired to be known and to know, to give love, to be loved. And as I came to know them by name and visit with them each day, my sense of my own spirituality began to kind of expand, that I'm much more than my abilities and much more than my intellect. And dementia is one aspect of these people. They're people first. And whatever form of dementia that they're that they're struggling with or living with, it does influence their lives and there is suffering. And I'm not to say that there isn't, but that there's so much more. And so when we only define people by their diagnosis, I think we're really missing the greater picture of their lives and of their spiritual lives. I always think, Amber, about, I don't like to be defined by the weakest part of myself 
or the part that is most, quote, broken, why would I want to do that with someone else? When you walked into the gardens and started to meet people and you describe how you were encouraged to spend time with those who are more cognitively with it, um, did you initially agree with that? I had about 200 residents under my care. And so I probably did in those first weeks find myself with the more cognitively able. But what I did that first year, and this comes from wisdom of others too, is I came up with a strategy of how I would connect with all the residents in the facility. And my strategy was to visit everyone on their birthday. I met everyone as an individual on a very special day for them, opened up a portal to to be human to human. Who doesn't want a birthday wish? (laughs) So it's slow. It's an evolution. And I always say I'm not built in any kind of special way for this work. I think everyone has it within us to connect on a very human level, to want to know and be known. So I think it takes time and getting to know people and being with people who are labeled, those powerful labels that stigmatize and that create this category that these people are in the land of the sick and we're in the land of the well. These people are somehow less human or kind of a shadow of themselves. But when we really come into relationship, we realize those things are all on a continuum for each of us. And there are parts of myself that have faded over time, but my essential self has not faded. And it's the same with those with dementia. You strike that focus on humanity and seeing others as human. You make the case pretty strongly in your writing. It almost feels a bit like an indictment of a society that places such a high value on productivity, on innovation, on contribution. And when we cross the road or evolve or find ourselves being less than able in those areas, that we are then seen as less valued as human, that our humanness is reduced and it's reflected in one of the first places language. Can you explain or talk a little bit about why you feel language is one of the first places that got you thinking about people who have been changed by dementia? I think as a writer, I'm always tuning in to words and what they reveal about our thinking and about our values. And I think as a minister, in a different way, I'm doing that too. You know, the Gospel of John in the beginning was the Word. And so we often, for good or ill, place a lot of emphasis on texts and interpretation and trying to get at deeper meanings behind words. So I think for me, in some ways, it's the air I breathe. And I was noticing my own words that I was using systematically seem to reflect this notion 
that people with fragile mental capacities were um, gone, vanishing, the death that leaves the body behind, the long funeral, the long goodbye, that it's all a series of loss. We prioritize a sense of defect for people as opposed to a sense of presence. We emphasize their absence and what's lost or fading as opposed to what might be ascending, what might remain. And it's through those portals that we treat people. And so our language feeds into treatment. So if we call someone a friend, we're going to treat them a certain way. But if we call someone a victim, we're likely to treat them in a way that emphasizes that position we place them in. Can you talk a little bit about your grandfather and his journey? Could you describe him for me and how his kind of struggle with the changes that occurred and how that shaped the way you think about your own work? I think my grandfather and reframing my relationship with him is a through line in the book. My grandfather is just uh, named Jack, as larger than life growing up. He was a physician and an active Rotarian. He traveled with humanitarian groups and was just uh, luminous in my mind, in my young mind, and as I grew up too. And he was someone who was always active, always on the go, teaching me things and showing me things. And he was never at a loss for words and never at a loss for for sharing from his life. And I could feel growing up a sense of admiration for him, but I didn't feel particularly close. I loved him, but I felt a distance because of his prominence. As he began to have trouble thinking, my grandmother really covered for him and cared brilliantly for him and shielded him from the stigma and from others really knowing what was going on. So when she died suddenly, while we had some sense that grandpa was struggling, her sudden death really launched my family into a whole new painful awareness of what he was enduring. And my mother had to immediately move in in order to help him live day to day. You describe in the book the discovery of your grandmother, unresponsive. What does your grandfather do? So my grandmother suffered a massive hemorrhage on the brain and didn't wake up one morning. And my grandfather's response when he couldn't rouse her was he... uh, went out on the riding mower and began mowing the lawn. So it wasn't until the teenager who my mother had hired to help get them around to run errands arrived that morning and found my grandfather on the riding mower and sort of put the pieces together and discovered my grandmother in bed that, you know, it was a really painful and defining moment for us and spoke to my grandfather's difficulty processing and reasoning at this point, and rips a lot of veils away of denial. You describe this scene 
sitting with your grandfather years later when he's in Mexico, Missouri, in the veteran's home. And he's fixated on a pine tree behind you. And a nursing assistant approaches and asks him if he's okay. And if he has a headache and would like some medicine. You don't see a reaction, but she does and gives him the medicine. And it gave me pause to think about my own assumptions as I envisioned him moving that mower. What must have been going on and how those feelings were being processed that he wasn't necessarily able to express? Yeah, I think the lens we use is so powerful. When we look at the lawnmower incident, we can look at that as like, oh, you know, He's just so far gone that he doesn't get it. Or we can look at it, this is a response to a grief that can't be easily named or dealt with. And so we do what we know to do. I find that that's a place I feel in some ways the most urgent about is redefining or really turning over the soil of our values. So if we decide that we're going to assign people's worth. We're going to tie it, tether it to their capacities. And when I say capacities, we define those very narrowly often. What we can accomplish or achieve in a particular economy, where I would like us to shift to think about capacity for compassion, for relationship, that doesn't stop with dementia. Relationships don't stop we, the able-minded, often cut them off. But the desire and the need for human connection, that, that doesn't stop. So I think we have to disentangle human value and worth from certain abilities that we have decided or that certain groups have decided are the most important indicators of who you are. Coming up, I continue my conversation with Lynn Castile-Harper, author of On Vanishing. Our conversation shifts to explore the history of spiritual and pastoral care for those confined to asylums. Stay with us. friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.com. 
www.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you are just joining us, I'm talking with Lynn Castile-Harper. Raised in Missouri, she now lives in New York and is the minister to older adults at the Historic Riverside Church in New York City. In addition, she's an essayist, and her first book, On Vanishing, was released in April 2020. It's nonfiction, part memoir, and part call to action— Exploring the dimensions of spirituality, social justice, and dementia. Harper believes that the words we use reveal who we value in our society. Lynn, there is an excerpt in your book that really struck me. It's where you start to describe how things began to change for you after your grandfather's death and how you began to hear and see words differently. Do you do you have it there? Could you read it? Okay, Amber, I have it. I saw references to my grandfather's dimming as another euphemism for progressive forgetfulness. The language was meant to be delicate, yet it was related to a host of other damaging metaphors that besiege persons with dementia. He was dimming, just like he was fading away, losing his mind, losing himself, disappearing in plain sight. This rendering, I thought, was a permutation on popular zombie tropes, which imagine the body of someone with deep dementia as still going, even as the real person is gone. The person slides into universal darkness, descending ever deeper into a kind of unreachable obscurity. After his funeral, the darkness of dementia, this metaphor I was quick to rally against, would not depart from me. I began to stumble into it everywhere— in newspapers and magazines, on television and conversation. Alzheimer's turns off the lights in the brain. It is spreading darkness, a dark fog. It is an invading kudzu vine blocking out the light. It dims one's fire. The eyes of sufferers are void of light. To find a cure, researchers must decode the darkness. Once stricken with the disease, sufferers steadily go dark as their loved ones watch the lights go out. A reviewer of the 2014 documentary, First Cousin Once Removed, which chronicles the poet Edwin Honig's final years with Alzheimer's disease, describes Honig's plight as the steady dying of an intellectual light. The 2007 sequel to Losing My Mind, Tom DeBaggio's popular memoir on living with Alzheimer's, is titled When It Gets Dark. Darkness. It elicits its own special dread. In the moral imagination, darkness is synonymous with evil and menace, with sinister deeds hatched in the dark hearts of dark men. And in the intellectual imagination, darkness is equated with stupidity, empty-headedness. Someone who is dim-witted, according to Merriam-Webster, is not mentally bright. In popular Christian spiritual imagination, darkness is associated with sin. Believers are children of light lifted out of darkness— that place of great weeping and gnashing of teeth. They are the light of the world. Light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. 
The annual stewardship campaign of a church I once attended brandished the theme, Be the light, light the way. How warped we would deem the slogan, Be the dark, darken the way. Thank you for reading that. You know, listening to you, it's clear you want a shift in our culture and in our language. But are there are there any other shifts that you want to see? Are there changes that you feel need to happen? I'd love to see a system of care in the United States that really values caregivers as intelligent and worthy of our greatest resources and support. I'd love to see professional care workers protected, valued, and properly paid and professionalized. I'd love to see faith communities take this seriously. I think we have resources to value people beyond what they can do or not do. Can you talk a little bit about the history here on the engagement of faith communities with people who were confined to long-term health care places like, like nursing homes? I really don't think we can talk about people with dementia, people living in nursing homes, without just talking about a broader sense of who we've decided can be removed from regular life and community. I go back to Anton Boysen, who was a Presbyterian pastor at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. Boysen was institutionalized, I believe, on a few different occasions. His diagnosis was dementia praecox, which is what we now call schizophrenia. But he had these psychotic breaks. And it was through this experience of being in an uh, asylum that he came to see the patients there were treated very medically and that there wasn't a lot of attention or importance placed on the spiritual life. And so there were psychiatrists that wouldn't really speak to him about his religious concerns. And then when the pastors came in, they had no idea what was going on medically and also couldn't offer a lot of care or insider support. And so clinical pastoral education sort of emerged from that wedding of a clinical understanding or basis, some knowledge, with taking the spiritual life our search for meaning, our search for love and relationships very seriously. And I think we have to do that, in my opinion, now more than ever, as people are under threat, as you say, of being their disease, being subsumed by their disease, that we people of faith or people who care about spirituality are to enter these spaces with a different lens. I can tell you anecdotally working in a nursing facility, I can count on one hand how many pastors from the community would come in to visit their congregants once they became unable to actually go to the church. And so that was very eye-opening for me because it felt like such a natural that a pastor who, you know, is representing a faith community that values people beyond what they can do or not do. So it was really disappointing on one hand. And yet I also like to grace to my fellow pastors and know that it's a tough job and you're pulled in a lot of directions. But I think faith communities, not only the leaders, but the laity too, we have to really think seriously when we say that we value the least of these, when we say we value widows and orphans, and our actions and our time and our resources doesn't reflect that, we have some real soul work to do. 
many times we are the taillights and not the headlights. And there are activists in the dementia community who are creating these inclusive communities and friendly spaces. And I feel like sometimes the church is, is lagging behind in that way. Do you see a shift happening in our culture? I mean, when you talk about the activists and voices, including your own, trying to influence and, and step into the public debate, pushing for a reframing of how we think about age and dementia. I'm seeing some glimmers, uh, some embers, <laughs> though at the same time, I feel like ageism is one of the last isms that needs a lot of organization around to call out on a consistent basis. I think we're seeing maybe some of that, especially and sadly with COVID-19 and the ways in which our older adult and fragile populations are being ravaged. So it's unfortunate that that has to bring to the forefront these activists who've been working for a long time. Now, to your point in the church, where do I see hope? I see some churches moving toward dementia-friendly training. It's slow work. In the UK, it's more prominent, but I'm aware of some people and some movements trying to make dementia-friendly worship services, for instance. So there's some groundswell. I think it takes a lot of time and it takes, like you say, the shift of values. I think we have to shift from seeing this as a charitable act towards sick people to looking at it like we are impoverished when we don't have relationships, when we don't cherish the gifts of people living with dementia. There has to be a sense of mutuality. So I see some hope in that. But again, talking about aging directly in the church tends to be a barrier, especially in in my church, the crowds I run in where the church is rapidly aging. And there's a lot of emphasis on trying to get young families and younger people so that the church can continue. But I would say that we have enough resources and enough care to go around. We don't have to choose either young families or older adults. I want to pick up on this point that you're making. You, you know, you're saying we don't have to choose either young or old, yet people do make choices. According to the CDC, 2.1 million people live in long-term care facilities, like nursing homes, where you get, you know, 100% 24-hour skilled care. And this pandemic, looking at the numbers, 45% of COVID-19 deaths are attributed to nursing homes and assisted living facilities. And that's including residents as well as the staff who care for them. And boy, I was struck by that number. And I've been looking at the and following the public debate, as many have. And, you know, your point about making choices, I'm just, I'm just struck and want your perspective. What do you see happening here? I see the manifestation of our values on full display. I see older adults as seen as a little tick less worthy, or maybe a lot less worthy of our collective efforts to stave off this virus. The first outbreak in the United States that we know of was at a nursing facility in Washington. And I often wonder, what if that had been a college dorm? What if the people who had died there were 20? How would that have changed our response. This is a justice issue. And so as a pastor wedded to social justice and spirituality, we have to ask ourselves, why are certain people expendable? And what does that say about our society? The idea that it's just 
in quotes, just old people who are dying, why does that lead us to feel like then it's okay to act in these ways that are reckless? I think we have to deal with our own, in some ways, internalized ageism. Most of us don't want to die young. But if we want to grow older, how do we want to do that in a way that's self-respecting and that loves who we are becoming and not just assigning, again, value to youth? What is it that you feel like we need now to confront the culture that you're describing? I think we have all the resources. We have to reclaim them. We have to lift them up. In my own faith tradition, we have long-standing resources for honoring those who are sick. And actually in Christian thought to see people who are vulnerable as actually the living Christ among us. So we're not just doing something nice to a sick person. It's actually when we serve them, we're serving Christ himself. So for me, I think every faith tradition that I know of has these resources within them. But it's a matter of naming and reclaiming them and really putting them into practical practices. And that can start very small. It can be a memory cafe or a respite program for caregivers or doing education around dementia, whatever we can do to help destigmatize aging, brain aging, body aging, all of it, and to drag it into full daylight and realize we don't have to be scared of the shadow sides of ourselves and of life, that light and dark is all a part of who we are. Implied in that is that when we see a problem in daylight, we will confront it and rise to the challenge. And I'm just thinking about the context we're in, the data that's emerged around who is impacted by COVID-19. Do you feel like faith leaders are, are doing enough to draw the lines between the various isms? I'm seeing some faith leaders certainly make the connection uh, COVID-19's ravaging of uh, black and brown communities. And I think there's just one more connection to be made with ageism too, and with vulnerable care workers who are disproportionately women of color in these nursing institutions. So I think the connections are ripe to be made. We just have to be intentional about making them. Ageism is again, almost like the last ism. It's the air we breathe. We make jokes publicly about senior moments, Alzheimer's moments, and we use being old as a disqualifier for political engagement at a national level. So we have a lot of work to do as a society around dismantling our own very deeply internalized ageism. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, I'm talking with Lynn Castile-Harper. For seven years, she served as the nursing home chaplain in a large retirement community in New Jersey. When she first arrived there, she encountered an unexpected expectation that she need not prioritize spending time with those who were, quote, slipping away. But she did. She formed relationships and found a passion. Today, she serves as the minister to older adults at Riverside Church in New York City. And in April 2020, Catapult published her first book, On Vanishing, Mortality, Dementia, and What It Means to Disappear. 
recounting her experience, the history of pastoral care, and the struggles facing caregivers in long-term care environments. Harper challenges readers to examine the underlying values and beliefs that shape how we see dementia. The book is compelling. Not a how-to in terms of how to give care, but a tapestry of stories and history that invites you to grapple with some really difficult questions and with ageism that is bound up in a society that values human productivity. On Vanishing is also about the personal, which is where we pick up the conversation. Lynn, as you were editing the book, you make a discovery that makes the subject even more personal. Can can you talk about what you learned and how that influenced the way you approach your work and advocacy? My parents underwent some genetic testing as part of some workup they had done. And I discovered in the course of editing my book that they both had a variation on a gene that strongly is linked to late onset Alzheimer's. So I was faced with whether or not to get tested myself to see if I have this particular gene variant. And if so, do I have two copies or one? One copy would elevate my risk by so much, and then two would really elevate my risk. And so I really had to wrestle with that and decided at the end of the day, for now, not to have that test and to live in that uncertainty. And so I live with that knowledge and that unknowing that is certainly part of what might be in my future if I live long enough. And it adds another layer of urgency to this for me and another layer of of personal connection. But it certainly grounds me in the reality and how do I want to prepare myself and how do I want to help create a society accepting of me and others now and not wait until it's too late for me to do this kind of work. Thank you for sharing that. You know, before we started the interview, I know I shared with you that this subject hits really close to home for me. I think it's one of the reasons why I read the book so quickly you know, I've gone through my own kind of grieving process with a loved one. And I found at least for me that when I was able to let go of my expectations and my grief and fear about who I was losing, I was able to, in a way, develop a new relationship. It was it was liberating. But it was also and has been deeply meaningful. What you've offered is exactly what I'm trying to say, that when we can be in relationship, it can take some of that fear away. It can lessen the dread or put the dread in a certain perspective and allow us to live with greater compassion for ourselves and for our own ways that we're confused now 
and the ways that we're partial and limited and vulnerable right now. You know, an issue you raised in the book is over-medicating. Um, I've, I've read that, and I've, I've frankly seen it firsthand in long-term care facilities, where residents are struggling with loss of independence, confinement, you know, transitions happening in their own bodies, loss of contact with families and friends, and, and to be honest, grief. Um, I have no doubt that it is overwhelming for caregivers, but a point you make quite strongly in your book is that dementia patients are overprescribed medications to control their mood and affect, often drugs that are known to pose serious health risks to dementia patients. What, what are you advocating? Yes, for us to examine our impulse to constrain that which upsets us or that which disturbs our sense of self or reality. I think that really has to be examined. So I don't blame these individual care workers who are doing the best they can, but we step back a layer and ask why this impulse to constrain certain people and their expressions. And and that gets at some deeper stuff. (laughs) It does get to deeper stuff. Um, You know, in the book, you describe this exchange that just captured for me the struggle for dignity. It's between a resident. I, I can't remember her name. She's upset. It's after a meal. And it's this exchange with a staff person. Can you share that story and and why you included it? So Ruth is, I think, the name I use in the book for her. Uh, Ruth had been had just moved to the dementia unit, and I had met her when she just arrived. And then a few days later, I encountered her in the activity room, wildly upset. And when I asked what was happening, one of the staff members told me that she was demanding a lunch, but she had already had lunch. And so they got her a pudding instead. And she threw the pudding at them and called them a bad name. And then a dining room staff member took the initiative and made her a second lunch. And she bit into the, I think, peanut butter and jelly sandwich and said, thank you. I don't think I've ever been so happy to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it was a scene that I revisited to unpack some of the ways in which our assumptions play out in these very real life scenarios. So the assumption that like a child, she should be given, you know, her meal was already given to her. So she can't have a second lunch that she was sort of infantilized, that she was ignored, her desire, her stated desire was ignored. And instead, we paternalistically give her a pudding snack, what we think is better for her. The fact that she blurted out, she's labeled sort of agitated or unreasonable, when in fact, she's, she's angry, because she's been ignored. And so we have I guess the fancy term is malignant social psychology. Another topic that emerges in the book that I've been thinking a lot about, especially in this pandemic and and in the midst of lockdowns in which nursing, you know, homes and long-term care facilities have restricted visitation is, is the subject of social isolation. 
There is such an acute level of isolation happening right now in long-term care facilities. You know, even the nursing staff and the CNAs, who were often the primary sources of physical touch, hugs, handshakes, and holds, you know, they're now less likely to extend that kind of physical comfort. What do you see as the consequences of that? Well, Amber, I think there's no two ways about it. It's it's heartbreaking. I think as you know, a faith leader, we've been saying physical distance does not equate with social or spiritual distance, and I believe that. And yet, on the other hand, <laughs> I also know what touch does and believe in the power of bodily presence. So I guess I want to start by just acknowledging that the brokenness and the sadness in this and not try to kind of put a happy spin by saying, well, we can still call. I know it's not the same. The church where I am, people call me every week. How can I help support the older adults? What can I do for our members in nursing homes? And so next week, we're throwing a card party for one of our members. She's turning 87. She's in the nursing home. And we're going to flood her with 87 birthday cards. And (laughs) this is beautiful. I just hand it to this daughter. And then, of course, our beautiful congregants who come to play. And, you know, so we're seeing people, the best in people in some ways. But that doesn't take away from the policies we really have to address around the vulnerability of care workers who have to work multiple jobs and are carrying coronavirus because they can't just work one place, who are wildly vulnerable. The policies that put nursing home residents in jeopardy in regular time that are exacerbated now, from Obama to Trump, the fines for infractions, say, on infection control have gone way down. So these are things that we can address on a policy level, but on a personal level, we we do the best we can. We call, we do the cards, we continue to to love and reach out. So I think it's both and, it's always personal and political. You talk a lot about light and darkness and the getting comfortable with the darkness and learning to not see it as a threat. When did that shift happen for you? So I had the amazing privilege to hike to the top of Mount Sinai with some friends. And we had a guide who came and knocked on our door very early in the morning, much earlier than we expected at 1 a.m. Our friend Matt, who speaks Arabic, thought we had arranged it for later. But we got up at 1 a.m. and Yusef was intent on getting us going, and we just fast-tracked our way up that mountain, uh, trying to keep up with this, you know, 19-year-old kid who obviously walks the mountain probably every day. And when we got to the top, uh, he set us at this ledge, and it was still pitch dark, and we were shivering there together. There was an encampment of Bedouin men by us, but no one else really on the mountain yet. And then the tourists started flooding in and it, we realized we really had the best seat on the mountain. There was no one in front of us, just this expanse. And as the sun came up, there was this moment, these few moments 
where I felt such unity and such peace between light and darkness. It wasn't that light overcame and it was shining bright and it wasn't that darkness eclipsed the light. It was this incredible union. And I felt that within myself for this fleeting moment, this sense of unification and peace. And so as I was thinking about how do we reclaim dementia, darkness, these things that we often code as evil or menacing, reclaim their beauty and their potential for balance between light and dark. And that that brings us into a space of greater openness and receptivity to ourselves and to others. So that Mount Sinai moment for me was just that perfect little touchstone to encapsulate what I was trying to say about dementia and the other shadow sides of life. Lynn Castile Harper is the author of On Vanishing, Mortality, Dementia, and What It Means to Disappear. She's a graduate of Wake Forest Divinity School and completed her chaplaincy training at the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Jersey. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>